Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 74. Uh, You can follow, of course, on the screen as I read. Uh, If you'd like to uh, reference the passage while uh, during Pastor Kevin's sermon, it can be found on page 576 in the Bibles in the pews. Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. Thank you, Randy. So one of the things that I, I get to do as a, as a pastor is I, I have the privilege of doing premarital counseling with couples that are looking to get married. And I have an opportunity to share with them a little bit about marriage and to share with them a little bit about the difference between, say, being single and being married. And one of the things 
that I, I will sometimes highlight is that, is that essentially when you, when you get married and have a family, the, the highs are higher than you can imagine, and the lows are lower than you can imagine. So it's sort of a, a roller coaster, getting married and having a family. The highs get higher, and the, the lows get lower. The highs get higher. I, I just, just this past week, I had the opportunity to go to my daughter's school and, and build a gingerbread house with her uh, out of graham crackers. And, 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 you know, I mean, like this, this moment when, when I see, you know, her taking icing and spreading on the side of this milk carton and, and smiling as she puts a graham cracker on the side and, and then I look up and there's, you know, there's like icing in her face and, and all of this. It's just one of those picturesque moments when you just realize how wonderful life is. Just one of these incredible highs. So, so having a family, the highs are really high, but the lows can be low too. So uh, then there's, there's building gingerbread houses with your daughter. And then there's taking your, your two, three, four, five-year-old daughter on a long car trip. And that's a completely different experience, right? When she was two or three, it was essentially nonstop crying and screaming. And there's nothing, there's nothing you can do. You can't, you know, you, you can't, like, if you're home, you can, like, you know, put her in a room and shut the door and go somewhere else and just, you know, hope that it goes away. But when you're in the car, there's just nothing you can do. It's just crying and screaming for hours. And then what I noticed is then as she got older, she got to be about three, somewhere around there, <clears throat> then, then words would start to come out, right? It wasn't just, wasn't just crying and screaming anymore. It would be things like, why, Dad, why? Why, Dad, why? Why can't I be home right now? Why can't I be home? Why, Dad, why? And then I noticed when she, between four and five, the why, dad, why changed. And instead of saying, why can't I be home, she started saying, dad, how long? How long till we get home? Today we're beginning a new series on the book of Psalms, which coincides with Advent season, as we'll see. The, the book of Psalms is, well, the book of Psalms is essentially, um, it's like ancient Israel's hymnal. Right? It's, it's a collection of the songs and hymns that the people of Israel would have sung in, in their worship settings. And so we have the, the psalms are collected over many generations. Of course, David wrote many of them. Others wrote many of them. And they wrote them. They were birthed out of their own experience. And so the psalms are this collection of of psalms, of songs of the people of Israel that sort of give us a window into the way they thought and the way that they prayed. The word, the word psalms literally comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means song. So that's just what it means. Now, as we, as we look at this particular psalm, I want to highlight, to start off with, I want to highlight something about this particular psalm that Randy read that actually, I think, causes some people to hesitate. There's something about this psalm that causes people to hesitate, uh, and it's, it, it makes them resist, I think, fully surrendering to biblical faith. To some, it really it causes them to question whether or not biblical faith is even a good idea. In fact, what we're going to see in here is that what, what, what this passage has in it 
can make people hesitate because it can lead people to believe that biblical faith is either dangerous or inconsistent. Either it's really dangerous because of what we see coming through in this psalm and in in many other psalms and other places in Scripture. Either biblical faith is really dangerous or maybe it's really inconsistent. And where this all sort of comes to a head, where we see this most strikingly, is in verse 11. So what does verse 11 say? It says, speaking to God, praying to God, it says, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. And what is this talking about? This is actually a prayer for God to destroy Israel's enemies. And the context of this is... It seems, I'll go, there, there's some debate about this, but it seems likely that this psalm was birthed out of the experience of the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. That, that seems to be what is being described in the early part of this psalm. And so likely what's going on here is this is a psalm saying, God, destroy them. Destroy the Babylonians. Destroy these enemies who have come and destroyed uh, your temple. Take... take Take your right hand and and destroy them. And this is something that in our culture, I think, of course, causes people to hesitate. This seems like a very dangerous kind of faith to embrace, this idea of calling God to destroy your enemies, particularly in 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 a pluralistic age which values, and and in a very important way values, this concept of tolerance. This seems to go completely against that. This idea that you should rain down fire on those who disagree with you. One scholar today goes so far as to even say that that he thinks that monotheism in general is dangerous. Just the idea that you would believe that your God is the one God and others are wrong just sort of sets up this sort of antagonistic attitude that such believers would have towards others. So some people see something like this this call for God to destroy their enemies, and they hesitate because and this isn't the only passage, and we could go through many of the Psalms and we'll see this throughout it. So people either hesitate because they see that this seems incredibly dangerous or they see that it's incredibly inconsistent because, because of course, one of the things that, of course, we want to say is, well, Jesus seemed to have a very different attitude. And Jesus seemed to have a very different attitude, a, a nonviolent attitude, an attitude of, of not retaliating against your enemies. He says, he, says, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek, right? It, it, seems, it seems incredibly inconsistent. And this, this attitude of Jesus is this was not just sort of a, a tangential issue to his agenda. In fact, it seems quite likely that his, that his attitude with regards to that it's probably a big reason why they crucified him in the first place. Because you've got, you've got, you can imagine that the context of the first century Roman world is that, that a first century Jew in that, in that world might very easily have prayed this very prayer, that, this very psalm that, we, that Randy just read. They might very easily have prayed that or sung it and been asking, hoping that God would come and deliver them from the Romans. The Romans were their enemies at that point. And so you can imagine a first century Jew kind of kind of wanting that to happen, and their hope and their expectation, of course, was that the Messiah would come and would, would you know, would just throw off the yoke of this Roman oppression. And so when Jesus comes and he starts claiming that, he, that he's the Messiah, he starts doing things and people start saying he's the Messiah, and yet he's doing what in their mind seems to be completely the opposite of what the Messiah would do, 
there, that, that is one of the reasons, it seems, probably why they, they wanted him crucified. Because how could this possibly be the Messiah? So this wasn't a tangential issue. They saw, in that first century, they saw this same inconsistency, seeming inconsistency, that people in our own culture do today. How can Jesus, how does this line up with what we find in the Psalms, this call for God to, de- for God to destroy our enemies, and then Jesus to say that we should love our enemies? How do, we, how do we reconcile this? And actually, the answer is very simple. It's simply this. <clears throat> when Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, generally speaking, he fulfills them in ways that take it to a much, on a much larger scale than the original or many of the original promises seem to indicate. So in many of the ways in which Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises and Old Testament prophecies, he fulfills it at a much higher level, a much bigger level, a much bigger perspective than many of the Old Testament promises seem to indicate. Not all of them. Some of them have this huge scope, but many of them have a more limited scope, and Jesus' fulfillment of it takes it to a much bigger degree. Let me just give you a sort of few examples of this, which are related even to this passage here. One is Jesus as the fulfillment of temple, the temple promises, the temple prophecies that we find throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the, the people of Israel longing for this time when God would, would rebuild the temple again after the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Then there was this longing for God to, to rebuild the temple, and that was present even in Jesus' day. Uh, even though the temple actually had been rebuilt, um, but many people in that day did not see the, the temple that had been rebuilt as a genuine fulfillment of those prophecies. Certainly it didn't line up uh, with what Ezekiel had to say, and they didn't like Herod. King Herod is the one who built it, and they're like, how can this guy possibly be uh, the person that God sent? So even though they had a temple, many of them were still hoping and praying that God would, would purify the temple or rebuild the temple, and that that's exactly something that the Messiah would do when the Messiah came. And so when Jesus came along, Jesus he actually kind of plays the part here a little bit. In fact, there's one point, right, where he says, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Now we're sounding like our Messiah. There we go. Now we're talking. That's a little bit, you know, bigger than we could have expected. Three days you're going to rebuild the temple? Really? Okay, you're a pretty big deal here. But then, of course, what does Jesus say? What he says that? Then he goes on to say, it, they, they come to realize that the temple that he's talking about is not the physical temple. It's his body. And he's talking about his death and his resurrection. And what he's saying is that I am the fulfillment of these prophecies to rebuild the temple, but I am the temple. And so he takes it to this much much larger scale, much larger degree. And he's saying that, that now, you, in, in order to enter into the presence of God, you no longer need to go to Jerusalem and go into the temple in Jerusalem to experience the presence of God. You simply need to have faith in me wherever you are. And so he fulfills that temple promise, but he fulfills it at a much larger degree than many of the original prophecies and promises seemed to indicate. Another example of this is with regards to the law. Uh, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, there are these prophecies about this time when God will come and he will write the law on the hearts of his people. He will write the law on the hearts of the people and lead them to obey. And certainly they would expect 
that, that when the Messiah came, that he'd be right at the forefront of that. But of course, what many of them saw that as, as seeing is that that would include things like if he writes the law in their hearts, well, that means that they're going to, the people are going to begin to follow more strictly all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament scriptures, that, that they're going to start taking the dietary restrictions and the, the rules of cleanliness, the sort of hygienic practices that be, were part of the culture of the Israelites and were outlined in the law that, well, I guess if the Messiah is coming, then we're going to start following those more strictly and, and observing the, the festivals and feasts and all of those kinds of things are going to become you know, that much more important when the Messiah comes. And then when Jesus comes, he says something very strange to them. He almost goes exactly against that. And he starts saying, actually, he declares all foods clean. He seems to be going against what the law, he's doing the exact opposite of what it seemed the Messiah would do. But of course, what we go on to find out is Jesus saying, listen, I am fulfilling precisely these prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I'm just taking it way to a bigger level. And he's saying what all of these laws were all about, all of these rituals, all of these practices, they were all almost an object lesson to point us to the importance of loving God and loving our neighbor. He says if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're fulfilling all of that. So he fulfills that promise. He promises, he gives us his spirit. The spirit comes upon the early church and enables them to, to love God and love neighbors in ways that they couldn't before. And he fulfills that, but on a much larger scale than they had many of the original prophecies had suggested or indicated. So then finally, that leads to a third way in which he does this is precisely with regards to our understanding of who our enemies are, right? So, so throughout the Old Testament scriptures are these promises that, that God's going to come and destroy the enemies of Israel and the Messiah is going to come and do that. And then you get Jesus who's telling everybody to love their enemies. But here's what we need to understand. Nobody battled our enemies more than Jesus did. Joshua did not battle our enemies as much as Jesus did. David did not battle our enemies as much as Jesus did. There is nobody in all of scriptures who battled our enemies more than Jesus did. But what does Jesus do? He completely redefines and shows us who our true enemy is. And what he goes to show us is that our enemies are not evil people. Our enemy is evil itself. Our enemy is the powers of darkness which are at work in every aspect of our world. So what he wants us to see is that our, he wants them to see our enemies are not the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Seleucids or the, uh, or, or the Romans or, or North Korea or radical Islam or Republicans or Democrats. These are not our enemies. Your mother-in-law is not your enemy. What is your enemy is the power of darkness that is at work, sin, sickness, death, the power, the spiritual forces of evil that are at work in all of these things. And that's what Jesus has come to battle. And Paul sums this up. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of of evil in the heavenly realms. Our true enemy is, is sin and sickness 
and death that results in so much suffering in our world. That's what Jesus came to battle. And so the way we can apply this, you see, is when we read through a psalm like Psalm 74, it, it invites us, you see, to, to read into it the struggles that we are having and to identify the, the powers of darkness that are at work in those relationships. I, I had a seminary professor who, who said that. He said, you know, the book of Psalms is a book where you're actually invited to read in your own perspective into it. Normally, we're just trying to get out of it what it actually says, but the Psalms have this unique way in which you're called to read into it. So whenever it talks about an enemy, you read into it the ways in which the enemy is is wreaking havoc in your own life. So so for you, you might read into this, and, and, and you might read, my enemy, well, my enemy is my own selfishness. My own propensity to put myself ahead of others. That's the enemy, and I need God to deliver me from that. The enemy is, is this addiction that I have come to. I'm addicted to, to something. Our, our culture, we're, we're addicted to so many different things. And, and it's like, God, help me. I need you to deliver me from that. God, I need you to help us. There's a battle going on in my marriage. And again, it's not that you're... Your wife is the enemy or that your husband is the enemy, but it's that there are forces of darkness at work that are trying to tear your marriage apart. It can be, that, that you, it can be the, the economic situation that you're in. Maybe there has been injustice that has been done to you or, or whatever it is, whatever the cause is. It's this reality that you're in a place of suffering, you're in a place of difficulty, and you're just, you're just, you know that you need God to deliver you from that. Of course, something I think very interesting emerges when we begin to apply this to our own lives and then take this psalm and apply it to our our, our own prayer life. And here's what we begin to realize. It's okay to be frustrated with God. It's okay to show frustration with God. That's one of the things that I think the psalms teaches us the psalms are just so real they're so raw you know i think there could be this this attitude that christians are supposed to just sort of pretend everything is okay all the time pretend everything's okay well that's certainly not what we see in the psalms and especially in church right you're supposed to pretend everything's fine in church but that's certainly not what it seems the israelites were doing they seem to understand the importance of being honest and and even showing their frustration with God. Let me just show you. I mean, I'll, I'll read a couple other texts that show the frustration of the Israelites with God. In, just in the, the chapter right before this, in chapter 73, listen to this. It says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Have you ever felt that way? Where you've tried to do the right thing? You've tried to maybe operate your business with integrity? You've tried to, to 
treat somebody well and it, and it ends up backfiring for you, it ends up not working for you, and you begin to wonder, like, why am I even doing this? Why am I showing such integrity in vain? It's all in vain. You see the sort of frustration that is coming through in this psalm. Here, here, here's another one, psalm, uh, psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? We just see this frustration coming through. Psalm 22, of course, this is a famous one. Psalm 22 just starts off like this. says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I remember... I remember one time, not that long ago, when I was really frustrated. I was frustrated with certain things that were going on, uh, sort of in, in family life and, and just some challenges that Laura and I were having to deal with. And, and there were some frustrations. And, and I actually came in here, and I sat right here, maybe in the front pew, and I just prayed through Psalm 22. I just prayed it out loud. If, you, if you'd been walking by, you'd be like, what is going on in there, right? The pastor's just, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I prayed through this prayer. And there's something incredibly freeing about that, about seeing that it's okay to show your frustration before God. The Psalms show us that. But what I want us to see, and this is really what this whole series is about, what the Psalms teach us to do is that in the midst of our frustration, the Psalms teach us to take our frustration and turn it into longing. It teaches us to take our frustration and turn it into longing. It teaches us to take our why, God, why, and turn it into how long, oh Lord. We see, again, in the song we're looking at today, we see the why, God, why. We see that at the beginning, why, God, why, why, God, why. But then it turns, it turns to this how long, oh Lord, how long. And what that, what that shows when we begin to pray how long instead of why, God, why, what it shows is that we don't necessarily expect answers. We just expect deliverance. You see, one of the things as we grow in faith is we come to realize we, we can't always expect answers to things. But what we can expect is deliverance in his time and in his way. If you come into my office someday and, and you come share with me struggles that you're having, having at work or health issues or challenges in your marriage or whatever, and if you say to me, Pastor, why is this happening? Now, sometimes there's some obvious reasons. You know, maybe you're doing something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? That's certainly true. And, and in a loving way, hopefully I'll maybe be able to point that out. But you know what? A lot of times you're going to come and why is this happening to me? And I'm going to say, I have no idea. I'm not going to pretend to give you an answer because I think it's really important for Christians to have that humility to realize God is so much bigger than us, so much bigger than us, that there are things we simply can't understand. And so Christians, we take this this looking for answers and we turn it into longing. We say, "I I don't know why this is happening, but God, I believe, I believe that you will pull me through this. We take our frustration 
and we turn it into longing. You know, th- this is very different than the way other worldviews look at it. Buddhism, for example. Uh, Buddhism is something that I see currents of the Buddhist way of approaching life emerging in contemporary culture. It doesn't always have the Buddhist label on it. Um, but because Buddhism, I mean, there's a lot of different kind of flavors of Buddhism. But Buddhism, at its essence, in some respects, can be not even so much a religion as it is a philosophy of life. It's just a way of approaching life. And, and one of the, the kind of central tenets of this philosophy of life is simply this. It says, suffering is inevitable. That's where it starts. Suffering is in an inevitable part of life. And so then it's all about how do you cope with that? Just face the fact that suffering is inevitable and then just sort of cope with that. And what Christianity does, what's interesting about how Christianity addresses this, is that Christianity similarly says, yes, suffering is inevitable. That's, that's clear. Jesus says, says this, in this world you will have sufferings. But then what is, in this world you have trials. But then what does he say? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. What Christianity offers is not just a way to sort of cope with the inevitability of suffering, but a way of coping with it that is grounded in hope. It's that, yes, this is inevitable, but there will come a day. It might be whatever you're dealing with. It might be tomorrow. It might be a year from now. It might be 10 years from now. It might be in the next life. But God will deliver you from that. And so we have this hope that enables us to deal with whatever it is that comes our way. We take our frustration and we turn it into longing. So out in the foyer, you you may have noticed that the Thanksgiving tree is gone and it has been replaced by a a new tree. I do just want to say at this point, we need to give Carol Thies a huge round. All that you see here, she set up. um, the, The flowers here were donated by uh, John and Lisa. I actually don't even know their last name. I just know them as John and Lisa who have been coming here for a while and they donated all of these flowers. Um, but Carol came in here and really just set all this stuff up. And so we're so grateful for you, Carol. But out in the foyer, you'll see there's a new tree out there. And it's called the, we're calling it the longing tree or the tree of longing. And it, it's the idea that, you know, with the Thanksgiving tree, what we would do is you would write on the leaves, you would, you would write things that you're thankful for. It's a time of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for these things in my life. The longing tree is now an opportunity to look at the challenges that you're facing in life. It's a tree for putting up your prayers of petition. What are the things that you long to see changing in your life, in the world, in your family? What are those types of prayers? And, and that's what the longing tree is for. So I just encourage you, that's going to be there throughout the Advent season, to write down your prayers of longing. And it's all part of this idea of taking our frustration and turning it into longing, taking our why, God, why, and turning it into how long. Now, of course, the question that emerges is how do we know that he will deliver us? Right? If the the whole Christian approach to dealing with challenges and suffering is to realize that, that, that is to to long for that day when God will bring deliverance, how do we know that he will deliver us? And, of course, this psalm gives us an answer, and the answer is simply this. We know he will deliver us because he has done so in the past. We see this here in 
beginning in verse 12, right? So the first section is just all about what's happened. God, our enemies have come. They have destroyed us. And then this frustration, why do you hold your hand back? God, take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. So this frustration, but then notice the turning in verse 12. But you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. Right, this is probably, more than likely, this is an allusion to the exodus, to the time when God rescued them and brought them out of Egypt and separated the Red Sea so that they could come through and then, and then defeated the Egyptians. And, and more than likely, that when it references Leviathan, in this context, Leviathan is simply a way of referring to Egypt as being like a, a big monster that, that God came and, and conquered. And so, so this is a way of saying the way that we know that you will deliver us is because you've delivered us in the past. And so this is a season where, yes, we, we long for God to come. We look forward to what God is going to do in our lives, but we ground that in what he's done in the past. So what I encourage you to do throughout this season is also to look back and remember, remember those times when God has worked in your life. We're so quick to forget the ways in which God has brought deliverance into our lives. Look back at those, those special moments when you knew in that moment, like, that was God at work in my life. I know for me, you know, I mean, I, I see God at work all the time, but you have sometimes there are those just incredibly powerful, tangible moments. And I had one a while back, and I've shared with you about this before, but I was struggling with anxiety, a lot, a lot of anxiety issues, and I had gotten to the point where, I was about to go to the emergency room, and I just got before the Lord and prayed and experienced that, the kind, that deliverance in, a, in such a tangible, real way. And I think what this psalm does for me is this reminds me, Kevin, don't forget that. Don't forget when that happened to you. When you look at the challenges that you're facing now, don't forget what's happened in the past because that's what reminds you and gives you the grounds for your hope that will do it again in the future. So here we are in Christmas. What is the Christmas season all about? Well, you see, it's all about looking to the past and remembering what God has done. That's the whole point of Christmas. Why do we do this every year? Why do we, you know, get all kinds of decorations? Why do we dress up as shepherds and angels and, and whatnot? Why do we do that? Why do we keep reliving this? And it's precisely to remind us of what God has done, to remind us that in the person of Jesus, God himself has come. God himself has come and humbled himself, humbled himself before each and every one of us and humbled himself to show his incredible love for us. And so it's a time for us to remember that. And then that is what points us to the future, right? So this Advent season is about looking to the past, to what Christ has done. And then because of that, we look to the future. Advent is about looking for when Christ will ultimately come again, but it's also looking for the ways in which he will come maybe in the coming month, and the ways in which he'll work to bring deliverance in our own lives. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. The ushers, you can begin to get ready in the back there. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And communion, of course, is precisely this same thing. Communion is an opportunity for us to look to the past, to remember what Christ has done, to remind ourselves that Jesus has died to forgive us of our sin, 
maybe what you need to be delivered from is as an insecurity or a guilt about, about things that you have done in your life. And so you have this guilt about you and you need to be reminded that Jesus died for you. Communion is all about reminding us about what God has done that through his death and through his resurrection, he has defeated all of the powers of darkness that are at work in our lives. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see in that verse, he calls us to look to the past as we take communion. You proclaim the Lord's death, but then it also calls us to look ahead until he comes. Will the ushers please come forward? Musicians, you can get ready to play. Please bow your heads with me. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the incredible hope that we have in the gospel. We praise you that you are a God who loves us so much that you came to this world as a child. You came to a world that did not value children saw children as insignificant, and yet you as a king chose to come as a child to be born in a manger to show us, Lord, that no matter, no matter how far in challenges and difficulties we may be, God, you have come to enter into that for us. You have stooped down as low as you can, so low that you were crucified as a criminal on a cross, God, I pray that as we remember what has happened, what you have done for us in Jesus, in Christmas, and in Easter, God, as we take these elements, we would be reminded of the grace that we have for you, a grace that will empower us in whatever challenges come our way. Pray this in Jesus' name.